0: Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast. My name is Nottie Towler and I'm a research manager here at Ampere Analysis and I will be your host for today. If you're new to the show, then firstly, welcome. Uh, we all hope you'll enjoy the episode. For a brief bit of context, Ampere Analysis is a market leading data and analytics firm um, and we specialize in the global entertainment industry. And this podcast is all about bringing together expert voices from across the company to discuss the latest trends, research and business insights in the wider media sector. For any keen listeners out there, you might think this episode sounds a little different to our previous ones. Uh, This is because after running this podcast for two years now, this is the first time we've been able to do this in the office and in person, which is very exciting. And we've got three fantastic guests with us today who will be sharing their latest research, Manal, Rahul and Peter. So why don't we actually go around the table um, and you guys can just give a brief introduction of yourself and also what you're going to be talking about today. So Manal, start us off, please. Thanks for having me Lottie. Um,
1: So my name is Manal Mota and I head up the consumer team here at Ampere Analysis. I've been working in market research and particularly in sport for over a decade now and what I've been looking at is the impact that sport documentaries like Drive to Survive has had on F1 audiences and then conversely the impact it's had on Netflix having content like this.
2: Thanks for the warm welcome, Lottie. My name is Rahul Patel, and at Ampere, I generally focus on SVOD content strategies around the world, and I'm excited today to talk about my new research on the influence of different Hollywood content.
3: Uh, Hi, I'm Peter Ingram, an analyst in the Markets Content team, and I've been researching the... Uh, overall results of the Oscars and Golden Raspberry Awards over the last 20 years to assess the different impacts that awards victories have on studios and the services hosting them. You are
2: listening to the AMP Podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com.
0: So let's get started. I thought we'd start with Manal, seeing as the new season of Drive to Survive has just, um, just landed. You say in your research that sports competitions have historically struggled to engage younger audiences. Why exactly do you think that is?
1: So at the moment, there is so much out there that's vying for younger audiences' attention. Sport isn't just competing with other types of sport competitions, but they're also competing with asphalt services. You're competing with gaming On top of that, obviously, young people want to go out and socialize. So it's really, really hard to get them engaged. And then if you take market dynamics on top of that in the UK, so much of premium sport is behind a pay TV wall. So it's quite hard for younger audiences to actually get access to it unless, for example, their parents are paying for it because pay TV isn't really something you get into until slightly later on in life. So there are quite a few barriers along the way.
0: And so why do you think Drive to Survive has been su- such a success with younger consumers?
1: It just kind of gives you everything, doesn't it? Um, like I wasn't really into F1 until I watched Drive to Survive last year. And then I completely um, binge watched the first three seasons. And it's that behind the scenes footage that gives you a real emotional connection with the drivers and the teams. And now when I watch F1 races, um, like last weekend, which was amazing, I actually feel like I know the teams, I know what's going on, I know the politics around it, and just being able to present them as real human beings and that emotional storytelling, I think it's what a lot of audiences want. For so long, sport has been... Um, it's kept fans at an arm's length and it's never really shown you behind the curtains, whereas this has kind of just opened it all up. And I think it's bringing in fans and showing that these like, sportsmen are incredible at what they do, but they're also just human beings at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I'm also definitely a new, a new fan, so I completely agree with all of that. Do you think this is something Netflix will continue to pursue then, uh, making other sort of sports documentaries?
1: Yeah, so they've already announced this year that they're going to be working with the ATP and the PGA Tour. So what they seem to be doing is they're targeting sports rights holders who've got a slightly older demographic skew. Um, because what we've seen with F1, and we will probably get into this in um, in a bit, but F1 has managed to skew its demographics a bit younger as a result of having the Drive to Survive documentary. And that is what the likes of the PGA and the ATP Tour are going to be hoping that with the deals with Netflix, they're going to be able to do that too.
0: Yeah, I imagine golf in particular is quite an old skewing um, demographic. Um, So yeah, you just touched upon how the uh, demographics for F1 fans have changed. Can you just give us a bit more information on that?
1: Yeah, so actually, when we looked into um, some of the data that we have, the proportion of 18 to 24-year-olds in our survey who say that they're interested in F1 has seen a growth across all of the markets that we survey, Um, apart from APAC, where there's been a slight dip. But actually, North America is where it's grown the highest, and F1 are going to be thrilled about that. When Liberty Global took over um, from Bernie Eccleston, one of their main targets was growing F1 in North America because it's one of the biggest broadcast markets out there and they weren't monetizing it properly. Whereas now, last year, they had 400,000 people at the Austin race, which was a record for them. And they have a new race this season as well. Um, so they are just going to be so happy with the fact that they're bringing in these younger audiences who will hopefully become lifelong F1 fans. So that's where some of the importance of younger demographics come in as well, is once you get people hooked, hopefully you can keep them as fans for quite a long time.
0: And do you think this fandom will translate into willingness to pay or is that something we've already started to see come through?
1: So you would hope so. I think maybe amongst younger demographics, you might still see a slight reticent towards it. And it's just because of... I mean, in the UK, especially with the cost of living rising, that people might have to make a few decisions about what they're spending money on. And while F1 remains behind a paywall in the UK and on Sky, it might still be a little bit out of reach. But at least by having a documentary on Netflix, F1 are able to still tap into that younger audience and they're giving them some way of still connecting with the sport, even if it might not necessarily be through live. Having said that, obviously Channel 4 do have the highlights. So there is a way to access on free to air.
0: Are there any other players that are kind of investing in this kind of content? So Amazon have
1: uh, done it. They were actually the first ones to do it with the All or Nothing documentary. I think that was all the way back in 2016 where they started um, with the NFL teams. And that's kind of been growing ever since as well. Like we've seen it with Man City was the first Premier League team um, to go behind the scenes. And they are actually filming with Arsenal at the moment. And I am a really big Arsenal fan. So I am very excited to see what happens when that lands in August. Um, but it feels like sport documentaries are really in their groove at the moment. Like lots of people are really engaging with them. And we've seen some really, really good examples. Like away from F1 and football, we had the last dance during the pandemic, which I don't know about you guys, but I got absolutely obsessed with. And I don't really care too much about the NBA, but all of a sudden I was watching a few NBA matches. So I think it really does have a potential to be a platform to create fandom on the back of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And for players who are investing a lot of money in sports rights, it definitely makes sense to have that content alongside. Rahul, actually, I wonder if you had any thoughts on why Netflix, who obviously haven't invested in sports rights and gone down that route, um, if you have any thoughts on why they might be sort of pursuing this documentary strategy?
2: I think there's something very specific about the content of Drive to Survive. Um, As a sports docu-series, as a reality show, it's very global in its nature. It's trotting all over the world following personalities from a variety of different countries. And I think that very much aligns with Netflix's broader strategy for original content where it's trying to target local markets with local content something like Drive to Survive, which travels all over the world, can appeal to lots of different markets in one go. Um, Looking at some of our Netflix top 10 tracking we do, I noticed in throughout 2021, um, Drive to Survive ranked number one in 22 of the markets that we tracked. And in terms of looking at just the unscripted content, it was only beaten by one other title uh, in terms of ranking number one in how many different markets. So that just kind of proves how much of a global hit Drive to Survive is.
1: Actually, Rahul, you make a really good point there about the global nature of Drive to Survive because what what that documentary provides Netflix is the ability to get into sport without shelling out a huge amount for live rights. And you're still then able to target those sports fans and get them on board your service without having to pay the big bucks, I guess.
0: That's very interesting because it seems like they're following a similar trend there with the golf and tennis again, which are quite sort of international, whereas Amazon seems to be more focused on um, with their all or nothing different teams, um, which I guess are a bit more localised depending on where that particular league or something is is popular. Just linking that, actually, I guess, um, you know, creating documentary content for sports fans is obviously a lot cheaper than getting the um, the rights. Uh, Peter, I don't know if you had any thoughts on, on this.
3: Yes. So the production of documentaries is, of course, um, a cheaper way of engaging that uh, audience through a different kind of content, but still engages with the stories that we are all very interested. I mean, just to jump on what was said earlier, I became a sort of an NBA fan as a direct result of watching The Last Dance, having not been so before. Um, And I think that using these Cheaper content types, you can still access this engaged audience. Uh, Plus, with a documentary format, you can enhance the narratives of lived stories by giving multiple individuals' perspectives on uh, the same event.
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely clear the kind of value that sports content can have for these players. So we're now going to pivot slightly and chat some more to Rahul, who's also been looking at the value of content, but measured in quite a different way. So Rahul, to start off with, please, can you just give us um, a bit of a description of the methodology you used for this piece of research?
2: Yes, certainly. So this piece of research aims to measure the influence of different movies and TV shows, utilising data available to us through IMDb. So if you go on the page for a movie or a TV show on IMDb, typically they'll have a section relating to references and there'll be a list of all of the TV shows and movies that reference that particular title. These references can vary in style quite a lot so they could be very direct like all of the in dialogue references to popular culture you'll see in the Big Bang Theory to the more abstract, such as the visual style developed in German Expressionism, inspiring the aesthetic of something like Batman Begins. So it's a very wide spectrum. Um, So essentially, we collected that information to see what Titles were referencing previously released titles. But we didn't stop there. So we're not just taking into account the number of times a movie or a TV show has been referenced. We're also taking into account how influential those individual referees are themselves. So essentially, a more influential title will give a higher weight to all of the content it itself is influenced by. Um, And essentially, we took all of that data together and created an influence score.
0: Okay, great. So, what kind of content was the most influential?
2: So, number one on the ranking was The Wizard of Oz, uh, one of my personal favorites as well, <laughs> followed closely by Citizen Kane and the original Star Wars movie. In terms of looking more broadly at the top ranking titles, if we take the top 100 by influence score, we found that 88% were movies, which reflects the earlier rise of um, cinema as a medium and also the artistic influence it's had over the decades. Um, and we also saw a swing towards sci-fi and fantasy and crime and thriller content. And looking at our popularity metric we've developed at Ampere, we can also see the same two genres performing well in terms of engagement. So that was quite nice to see. In terms of where the most influential titles are coming from in terms of who produced them, Disney and Warner Media came out on top as the parent studios who, Um, produced this content typically over the 20th century and then those two entities are followed fairly closely behind by the other major Hollywood studios.
0: Um, I wonder if you you know if you repeated this research in sort of 10-20 years what kind of shifts do you think you'd see so maybe more TV shows or do you think there'd be some shifts in genre as well?
2: I definitely think we'll see a progression or acceleration of the trends we're already seeing. So over the decades, TV shows have become more influential. They're accounting for a greater share of the sort of decades worth of influence scores. So some of the most recently released influential TV shows include, unsurprisingly, Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad. So. If I'm still here in 20 years time, and I repeat this analysis, um, I'll probably see uh, TV shows rivaling movies in terms of total influence released that decade. In terms of genre, um, I think we'll still see crime and thriller and sci-fi and fantasy out on top, uh, just because those seem to be the genres that prove popular over time. But I think we will also see a rise in the influence of unscripted titles like Drive to Survive, perhaps, because over the decades, we've also seen a swing towards unscripted content as well.
0: Um, So how does your research apply to the current SVOD market?
2: Yeah, so this was actually perhaps the most interesting part of the analysis, taking the influence scores we've assigned to titles and seeing how that plays out in the current SVOD market. So focusing on the United States, what we found is that HBO Max by far and away has the most influential library of content. This is largely down to the vast number of movies it has on its platforms that has proved influential, as well as certain... Deals made in the 20th century that allowed Warner Media to acquire such a powerful content library, as well as more recently the output deal it has with the Criterion channel to distribute some prestigious movies on its platform as well. In terms of looking more widely at the U.S. SVOD market, I found that Hulu had the strongest TV catalogue in terms of influence. But I, this is also where the story gets interesting because... One of the most influential titles Hulu had on its platform was the Star Trek original series, which is the most influential TV show in the entire rankings. But of course, with the new studio-backed platforms launching, we're seeing a pullback of rights as studios seek to offer their own content exclusively on their own platforms. And so we'll probably be seeing a shift in terms of the influence allocation as we go forwards.
0: You've mentioned a couple of different franchises so far, such as um, Star Trek, Star Wars as well. Um, was that something you saw when you were looking at the top influential titles? Do their franchises seem to play quite a big part in that?
2: So certain franchise titles certainly made it through to the top. So um, as I mentioned, Star Wars was the third ranking um, title by Influence Score and Star Trek, the most influential TV show. Um, but... Essentially, the most influential titles are a mix between what we'd classify as classic cinema, like 2001 Space Odyssey or Casablanca, and then also early versions or, or iterations of franchises that are highly valued today. So the very first... Um, King Kong film also ranks very highly in the influence score, um, which of course is a character that has gone on to inspire a number of other films um, and still being released to this day.
0: So these are definitely very like valuable assets for platforms to have, um, particularly if new releases um, are coming out. Are titles like this still seeing, you know, quite a lot of engagement today um, because a lot of them are quite old.
2: That's a good question. Um, again, it's Quite a big mix. So I took a look at the 100 most influential titles and 42 of those are still considered popular today using our popularity score, maintaining a healthy engagement over time. So there's certainly the element of the influential titles proving popular over time. I think one of the main reasons why some of them prove less popular today is that some of them aren't as widely available as other titles. So some of the older uh, movies aren't as easily accessible. And I also think some of the more influential titles have inspired a sort of cinematic style as opposed to characters. And in today's market, it's what character, it's characters that are at the forefront of what's the most popular content.
0: So where do Amazon and Netflix fit into this? Um, They've obviously got, you know, um, they're sort of much newer players compared to the other studio-led platforms. Are we starting to see any originals from them feed through into influential titles?
2: Yes, definitely. So looking um, at SVOD originals within the influence score, Netflix came out on top with Stranger Things being the most influential SVOD original. And Orange is the New Black and House of Cards featured fairly highly on that list as well. Second in the list actually was The Mandalorian. So Disney Plus original, which was released at the point of recording just over two years ago, has already proven highly influential. And I think we're seeing that franchise benefit definitely uh, having an effect there. Um, But in terms of the wider catalogs, I think the relevance of this type of research to a platform like netflix or like amazon is that it can give an indication of what types of content is valuable when it comes to licensing and of course while netflix shifts towards more originals more in-house amazon is still very much in the game for licensing of content Um, and of course, for both of these platforms, their influence scores are largely informed by that licensed content rather than that newer original content.
0: So as a lot of the studios have already gone direct to consumer, where do you think they'll be looking to license this kind of content? What other players have have sort of influential back catalogs?
2: Of course, with a lot of the major studios now having their own platforms, we're likely to see a lot of the influential Titles go in house, reducing the ability for those platforms themselves, as well as the streaming incumbent platforms like Hulu and Netflix, to license the content. And on a sort of side note, we might even see the influence score in the future start almost inverting as um, studios just reference their own content more and more, as we've seen the rise of spin offs and reboots gain popularity within our commissioning database. But in terms of the studios that are still licensing content out there uh, until very recently that would have been mgm of course the acquisition by amazon is now going through so we're likely to see um in a few years the mgm catalog which is quite influential feed into the amazon prime video library um so that largely leaves sony at the top of the list in terms of a major studio that has a large catalog of influential content and as we've seen particularly over the last two years um Deals with Sony are proving uh, quite lucrative, um, and these major streamers are seeking deals with Sony um, fairly aggressively.
0: So as this kind of pool of licensable content dries up, what are we kind of seeing in terms of spend, Peter, from some of these major platforms?
3: For the major services, you're typically seeing a significant increase in original content spend. So compared to just a few years ago, where services were comparatively new into the market, getting to a point now where, over the next five years, we're going to see likely the overtaking of original spend compared to total acquisitions. Um, This isn't necessarily to say that the acquired content is losing value or is not important to the overall catalogues of the service. It's more an indication that there is a significant audience for both types of programming, both the uh, historic influential catalogues of different studios, and indeed the newer productions that likely bring in fan bases that can then be continued over the next few years.
1: That's really interesting about what you say about bringing in fan bases. Rahul, I don't know if you had a chance, but did you have a look in the consumer data about whether heavy cinema goers over-index in terms of access to s catalogs, which have the more influential titles?
2: Yes, this is actually something I looked into. So among the top 10% of cinema goers in our most recent consumer wave in the United States, I found within that cohort, they over-indexed for subscribing to HBO Max more than any other platform, which perfectly aligns with what I found in HBO Max having the most influential catalogue overall. Um, And I think this comes down to HBO Max offering a catalogue that appeals to cinephiles. And in terms of the top 10% of cinema goers that I analysed, they are certainly... They are by no means a bad group of um, consumers to target. They typically skew younger, wealthier. They are more likely to take more s services. So I think it's a specific niche in the market that HBO Max is tapping into um, and something that is quite valuable that differentiates it from competitor platforms.
0: It's clear HBO Max is kind of targeting these influential high-quality movies as part of its strategy, which actually brings us on really, really nicely to Peter's um, research. Um, He's been looking at the Oscars and the Razzies. Peter, for this piece of research, you use both um, Ampere's proprietary popularity score and critical ratings. So first off, can you just give us a bit of a description of those and how you've used it in this research?
3: Sure. So the popularity score is a collation of different metrics. So uh, volume of web traffic around certain titles, um, just volume of interest taken from sites such as IMDb and overall box office of the films that are tracked within the um, to us. So, this gives an indication of how much consumers are engaging with different titles uh, over time. So, this has been used as a way of understanding the impact that awards nominations have for particular films. Uh, typically, when a film is nominated for an award, good or bad, you see a spike up in consumer interest for it at that point. And so it was interesting to track that through for some of the previous winners and nominees of both sets of awards.
0: Interesting. And so can you tell us a little bit more about the different award shows that you looked into and some of the parallels you might have seen?
3: Yes. So the major um, film awards were the Academy Awards, so the Oscars and the Golden Raspberry Awards, a comparatively new um, award ceremony, but one that is designed in good fun to celebrate, if that is the right word, some of the uh, more critically reviled films that came out in the previous year. So the Oscars, of course, is the more prestigious title. uh, Winning the Best Picture nominee is an important achievement for any film given that it not only drives immediate audience attention but also canonizes the film essentially within film history and so creates uh, interest that will last for subsequent years. So I think many of us are reminded of the Oscars sort of in February when the awards nominees are revealed and that brings to mind some of the previous winners and the discourse of uh, previous years. And so it's important for studios to try and have their titles land some of these big awards as it's a good tool for turning interest to the titles.
1: Sorry, so I know a little bit of a tangent, but who exactly is nominated for the Razzie's?
3: So the Razzie's, there are five nominations this year. Uh, Some of the key ones being the perhaps... Perhaps a fair Diana the Musical, which is available <laughs> on Netflix. Uh, there is the Space Jam sequel, as well as the black comedy horror film, Karen, and the... Uh, Um, The Woman in the Window, a Netflix psychological thriller which received so much uh, online backlash that immediately afterwards they green it a parody of their own project, The (laughs) Woman in the House across the street from The Girl in the Window.
2: I feel like it's an endorsement of my own film taste that I've only seen one of those nominations. Um, Yeah, Princess Diana deserved better.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I also heard the other day that is there an entire category dedicated to Bruce Willis films in twenty
3: twenty one yes, so occasionally the masses <laughs> hosts specific um, one time only awards <laughs> to again celebrate is perhaps the wrong word but to bring attention to specific actors or specific industry trends uh, this year Bruce Willis has starred in eight different um Action and sort of adventure films. That
0: is an impressive amount. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yes, it's only about one and a half months. <laughs> He's working very hard. Um, <laughs> but due to him being an actor who has been in the industry for so long, uh actors such as himself and uh, other action leads, so like Sylvester Stallone, do occasionally get attention brought to their filmography. <laughs> but yes, uh, there's a mixed titles that are available there. Well, once there's a mix, they do have fairly similar genre profiles, hence the inclusion of a dedicated category just for him, given that he has sort of made the same film eight times.
0: (laughs) So what are some of the other trends you can see if you look at the nominated titles for each show, for example?
3: Well, looking at the Oscars, you typically see more prestige genres being uh, represented among the major nominees. So for Best Picture, the leading genres over the last 20 or so years have been drama and crime and thriller. So these are typically more serious genres that can engage um, more critical audiences. Whereas if you look towards the Golden Raspberry Awards, you see more light and consumer-friendly genres. So the likes of comedy, romance, and sci-fi and fantasy are typically the most represented there. Um, Certainly for sci-fi and fantasy titles, for which many of the nominees are blockbusters or intended blockbusters, uh, if they fail to connect with their target audience, and they become the prime candidates for Razzie nomination.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting when you compare sort of those genres with what Rahul has said when looking at influential titles and popular titles. Um, Crime and Thriller are clearly doing well in both, but yeah, (laughs) sci-fi... Um, seemingly sort of more popular rather than necessarily always critically acclaimed. Um, If we were to think about sort of drama and crime and thriller content that does does well within these awards, Manal, what kind of consumers uh, tend to enjoy that sort of content?
1: So when it comes to crime and thriller and drama, it tends to skew slightly older um, in terms of preferences, whereas for the younger demographics, they much more lean towards horror and anime, which I imagine would horror would probably feature in the Razzies a bit more. Um, so yeah, I feel like you're really targeting a demographic which is maybe a bit more middle aged or older
0: for that. What about winners, Peter? Are there any sort of key differences between nominated titles and the winners?
3: Well, I think that overall the genres that are most commonly represented among nominees are also commonly represented among the overall winners. Um, In terms of the uh, specifics, it is quite interesting that comedy actually is quite well represented across both sets of awards in terms of overall winners with some uh, uh, genre films that perhaps walk the line between drama and comedy uh, being featured in both sets of awards. In terms of other specifics, only one franchise film has been seen among Best Picture Oscar winners of the last 20 years, this being Lord of the Rings Return of the King, while several franchises have been featured at the Razzies, such as Twilight, Transformers and Fifty Shades of Grey.
1: That's actually really interesting. So with the Razzies, does it tend to be in the franchise later on in the franchise as opposed to the first film?
3: So... Franchises typically get nominated and win at the peak of their cultural relevance, so while the Transformers series is still ongoing, its nomination back in 2010 is better reflective of its role in popular culture. I suppose the same is true of Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, with its role as the conclusion of the series, bringing it to the attention of its widest audience. But even these negative awards can be very useful. Um, Indeed, the fact they have been nominated does canonize them, albeit not in a particularly positive light. And so for fans, this is something that doesn't actually drive attention away from these films. Getting uh, negative review, uh, I suppose the way to put it is, um, uh, any press is good press when it comes to these franchise titles. So it does indeed drive additional audiences to it.
0: With regards to those franchise titles, actually, how does it correlate um, to box office? As I imagine some of those franchise titles are probably doing, you know, pretty well in the box office. How do those Razzies and Oscars um, sort of compare?
3: Well, it does um, trend in an interesting way over time. So over the uh, 10 years from 2000 to 2010, it was uh, pretty stably um, the case that Oscars were the higher uh, box office generating films, whereas we now see over the last 10 years a turn more towards the Vazis. So it does certainly depend on a year-by-year basis. But the, the fact that there have been a few instances of very high box office generating films are skewing up Vazis compared to Oscars, which have been trending down, downwards for some time.
0: So one of the other um, things you looked at within your research is uh, sort of where those titles, both the nominees and winners, are available on SVOD. So, yeah, where where should people go to get hold of, um, I guess, the best and the worst of the movie world?
3: Well, for fans looking to put themselves through every vastly nominated film in 2021, Netflix is one of the better situated services uh, with two of the five titles, many of the others available through transactional video on demand. When it comes to the Oscars, however, films can be found on a variety of different services. So, of course, many of the films, especially those released later in 2021, can still be found in theaters. Many of the titles are available through services owned by uh, their studio parents. So for Warner Media, Dune, which is nominated for Best Picture, can be found on HBO Max. For Disney, West Side Story can be watched through Disney Plus. And for Netflix, Power of the Dog and Don't Look Up. For film fans, this wide availability of titles may be both a blessing and a curse in that most films are available to watch at home ahead of the awards ceremony. However, in order to watch all of them, one would need access to multiple subscription video services and have need to have the availability to rent the remaining films through a transactional video service. These. Numerous different service subscriptions add up, meaning that for the most ardent fans, total costs of home entertainment approach those of multiple different cinema tickets.
0: One of the other things that occurs to me, actually, just um, going back to some of the trends you were mentioning, is that um, all of these films you've mentioned uh, seem to be US produced. Um, Is this typical of um, all of the films you analysed, or do you think we'll start to see a change in that as sort of content becomes more globalised?
3: I certainly think it is likely that there will be more representation of international films among the Oscars, Uh, perhaps not the Razzies, given that they are a primarily Hollywood critical awards uh, ceremony. Um, But we have seen um, great progression in terms of international representation at the Oscars. Uh, A few years ago, Parasite, a South Korean film, won Best Picture, Um, and Over the last few years, we have been seeing more international films that have been among nominees. Indeed, this year, uh, Drive My Car is one of the films that is nominated for Best Picture. So it is certainly likely that going forwards, we'll see a greater turn towards international content among nominees.
0: And in terms of the effect that these award nominations or wins can have on platforms that have kind of like rights for this content, like what are we kind of seeing, I guess maybe from a consumer standpoint Manal, is that like a driver for viewing?
1: So we actually added in a new question to our consumer study recently, looking at why people are watching content and awards doesn't feature that highly. It's the second to last reason. So while there's a lot of publicity and acclaim around it. Actually, word of mouth is more influential with your um, recommendations from friends and family. So it seems like that slightly more personal touch um, has more of a bearing on what people are watching. But actually, I'd be quite interested to hear if Rahul, like, are you guys seeing spikes in popularity within our service when things are winning the Oscars?
2: Yeah, we definitely see, um, as Peter alluded to earlier, an uptick in engagement when nominations for a title comes out. So Code is a great example. It was released in August 2021, but towards the end of 2021, start of 2022, we've seen an uplift in its engagement um, as a result of it gaining steam in all of these awards shows. In terms of winners, we've certainly seen evidence for this as well. So after Parasite won Best Picture and then Nomadland the year afterwards, when they both debuted on Hulu in the United States, they were within the top five titles in terms of popularity in the United States available on the platform. We can certainly see a synergy there between um, being nominated or winning and then engagement coming further down the line.
1: So I guess it might be a case of it while it's not a driver to sign up for a platform, if you have a subscription to something already
0: and then something is nominated, you're probably more likely to dip in and watch it. Right. So I've saved the biggest question till the end. Um, What are everyone's predictions for the Oscars?
3: Well, I think that it would be a very interesting uh, turn up this year if one of the films that is an SVOD original won the Best Picture. There's been a lot of criticism of those titles being featured in the award ceremonies over the last few years, uh, which has certainly changed as a result of the pandemic causing a shift in release strategies. Uh, this year, three of the ten nominees are SFOD originals of or exclusives. So there is certainly a strong chance that one of those titles, um, Coda, The Power of the Dog, or Don't Look Up, could realistically win the best picture.
2: Yeah, I definitely have my hopes for The Power of the Dog winning um, one of my favorite films of last year. In terms of other predictions, I don't. I don't know. I'm not. I'm certainly have my fingers crossed for certain categories. I want wins for Kristen Stewart and Ariana DeBose, and then Dune can take everything else, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd be very happy.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Dune will, you know, be one of the franchises that does do well this year.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go with Power of the Dog as well. Um, I think just accessibility as well. Like I've got Netflix, so I've been able to watch that. Um, will play a part in it, but I'm also kind of secretly rooting for Andrew Garfield as well. I did not know he could sing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I I think that's all we have time for today Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests for for all of your time and for sharing your research with everyone today all listeners can find the full article written by Manal on the rise of sport documentaries at sportspromedia.com where she'll be a regular contributor going forward and for Ampere clients both Rahul and Peter's analysis can be found on the reports page of our website as always if you haven't already make sure you're subscribed to the Amp And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening.